prayer. Father, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the promises that you've given us, the things that you've laid out for us in your word that we're able to trust in, that we know are true because you've already proven that they are true. You've proven that you are a God who not only doesn't lie, but can be counted on for all of your promises. You've shown that through the fulfillment of prophecy, through the fulfillment of your promises, and also the certainty that we have of our future is based upon those promises, is based upon your ability to fulfill them and your habit of doing so. So Lord, we trust you not just through what you've said, although that would have been enough, but also through what you have done. And we thank you for that. I ask that you be with us in our study today, that you be with our church, those of us who are suffering, those of us who are suffering trials, persecution, um, as well as just the general things that we go through as being in a fallen world. We ask that you be with us, that you strengthen us, and that you empower us for godly living. I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We're going back into the study of the rapture, and what we're going to be focusing on today is trying to fill or fulfill our last, <laughs> I say this again, we, we are going to finish it today no matter what. I'm going to make this happen. Um, we have this argument that we've been on for weeks. Now, it's a fairly important argument. We're not going to go into too much time reviewing because I feel like we did a sufficient review last week. If you don't know the argument that we're interacting with, I would encourage you to listen to that review. But... It is somewhat significant because anyone who doesn't have a dispensational background probably has a little bit of a reformed background. Now, another way of looking at that is a covenant theology background, which would then teach them that the church is essentially something that replaces Israel. Which does, it does several things, but one of the main things that it does is it puts the church on the same existential plane that it puts Israel, which removes the distinctions between them, which then makes it permissible because now you've mushed the church with Israel, the nation which is promised to be in the tribulational period, that has several promises that we've looked at as far as her um, becoming. Literally, everything promised about the kingdom gets fulfilled through what follows the second coming. In order for those things to take place, they have to go through the tribulational period. Two-thirds have to be cut off. They have to believe in him. They have to call out to the Lord. We looked at that in Matthew 23, um, where they're basically saying the psalm, blesses he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're identifying that he is, in fact, who he says he is. So the king of God's own choosing... Who is going to bring forth this theocratic kingdom we spent so much time studying is someone they rejected, but he will be someone that they trust, someone they believe in. Now, that being said, we don't believe the church is going to be in there. So, very quick summary. We interacted with basically the building block of who is Israel. We looked at how she was built. We looked at her construction. We looked at the promises that God fulfilled and the promises that he still has yet to fulfill. And we know because of the promises given in the Abrahamic covenant, as well as the three other unconditional covenants, that Israel has to go through the trib, and Israel is also not rejected. Israel has not lost her place as the people of God. What has happened is God has simply set her to the side for a purpose. Again, setting something to, this, 
to the side is drastically different than abandoning something. It, it does not say that God divorced Israel. It says that he set them to the side. And it is through the work in the church that he's actually going to bring them to jealousy. And we're going to be looking at a few of those things today. So how we answer the question of why is the church not going to be in the trib in order to do that, we had to look at who the church is. We looked at how she began. We looked at the, um, we'll call them the pre-church promises in the upper room discourse. Moving forward, we also looked at when the church started. We looked at the fact that she started in Acts chapter 2. We looked at our promises in the future, the fact that we're promised that we won't have to go through the divine wrath of God. But more specifically, we're given a more specific promise that not only are we not going to be in the wrath of God, we're not going to be present for the time of the wrath of God. In Revelation 3.10, it shows us that we're exempt from the time of testing that comes upon the whole world. So that being said, we have all of these promises given to us. So what we're going to end today is we're going to be looking at the disparities between the church and Israel. This is somewhere where we stopped last week. Now that being said, we notice that the church is known as the bride of Christ. Um, Now, people might say this is a minor detail issue, um, but Israel is known as the wife of Jehovah. Now, obviously, God didn't marry Israel, but the closest that God could make our understanding of Israel's relationship to God would have been marriage, because that not only best describes the relationship where he's providing for her, where God is providing for Israel, where he is sustaining her, where he is teaching her and all of these other things, but it also provides a good background. I don't want to, we're not talking about how God felt about it, but just the severity of their disobedience to God. It was analogized to an adulterous woman, a woman who has abandoned her husband. Um, we, we see that a lot throughout the Old Testament. So, contradistinction, we have the church who is known as the bride of Christ, someone who is not yet wed to Christ. Again, just on any single one of these differences would show us on its own that they're they're completely distinct from one one, one another. Because if Israel was the wife of Jehovah, married to Jehovah in the analogy that God has given, and the same analogy God uses similarly for the church and and Jesus— She's the bride of Christ. She's not yet married. We see that later. We looked at that last week. We also looked at the fact that we were begun at Pentecost, that we were, the church began when God gave her the Holy Spirit, empowered her for godly living, set her apart from all their individual nations to be a part of the universal church from all nations. Israel, very different. Israel was started in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, with the promises God made to Abram. And then ultimately brought through Isaac and Jacob, we see that God specifically chose in his sovereignty to set apart Israel for his own purposes. We see that actually pretty clearly in Romans chapter 9, where God shows them as his elect nation, where he chose them for the purpose of spreading the good news that God, the one God, the only God, And that was their job. Very different from the church. Now, we also saw last week that the church is from all nations. Israel, very differently, is a nation, specific nation. 
genealogically connected. We're looking at these people. They are descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, Abraham had many descendants. Isaac had many descendants. Jacob had many descendants. But ultimately, it is through that specific line of those three people that we get Israel. Um, There are Israelites in the church. Very different. We have some in our church, but our church is not comprised of Israelites. We're not a new type of Israel. We'll look at that very briefly later. Now, the next point that we looked at was that Christ was the builder and the foundation of the church. God built his church. God is building his church still today. Um, Christ did not build Israel. I mean, you could argue that from the Old Testament, but Christ was born of Israel. He was an Israelite. He was from the tribe of Judah. Next, God promises to rescue the church from the tribulational period. Now, this is very significant. We're going to read it again. We're going to read it another 15 times before we finish with the study because this is so very important. And what I've noticed, and I've, I've read quite a few rebuttals to the pre-tribulational rapture, and you can turn to John chapter 3 if you want to, or you could just listen in. Every single time I hear a rebuttal, John chapter 14, I'm sorry, not John chapter 3. I go to John chapter 3 for other things. Um, every single rebuttal of the pre-trib rapture never talks about John 14. Never. They'll talk about First Thessalonians. They'll uh, reattribute all the contents of it to the second coming. Do the same thing with 1 Corinthians 15. But what they never do is they never interact with John 14. They kind of let it fade into the background. And if you interact with them about it, they will... <laughs> bring up hypothetical ideas about what they think it's about, because if this has anything to do with the rapture, the case is settled for the pre-trib rapture, and we can go into that at a different day. Um, More specifically, because we'll have to find another time in history where God takes specific people and takes them to, not the world, but to the Father's house, and we don't really see that anywhere, and again, we'll go into that in a little bit more detail later. But just kind of keep that in the back of your mind. If you divorce the study of the rapture from John chapter 14, we, we don't really have a delivering point. We don't have a point where God actually takes us to. Now, it does talk about in Matthew chapter 24, the gathering of the elect. But we spent so much time on that to show that that has nothing to do with the church. That has nothing to do with the church age. That has everything to do with the tribulational period and the gathering of Israel at the end of the tribulational period. So again, we can go into that later. But in John chapter 14, it says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God and believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also, and you know the way where I am going. Because ultimately, that's the promise that he's making to us. Now, we spent time on this over a year ago when we looked at what is the rapture, when we tried to answer that question. And the the word for dwelling places is mostly used as a temporary dwelling place, which makes perfect sense because the whole point is for us to be raptured, whatever time period from the point of the rapture to the beginning of the trip to the end of the trip will conspire, or transpire, not conspire, um, will we'll actually go down, and then we will go back to the earth with the Lord at the end. In Revelation 19, we see that. We're coming with him already gifted. 
So that being said, it makes perfect sense that this is a temporary dwelling place because ultimately we're going to be ruling and reigning with him on the earth. We looked at that as well when we looked briefly at the Bema Seat Judgment. But just keep in mind um, that Christ promises specifically to rescue us from the time of Jacob's trouble. Now, it's not worded that way. It's worded as the time of testing. It's worded as, in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 9, the time that's about to come on the whole world. And all of these different things, we just have to keep in mind, that's what we're promised. That's specifically to the church. That's to, if you want to look at it, make it even more specific. It was to the Thessalonian believers. It was also in Revelation chapter 3. So at the end of the day, we kind of have to keep in mind that that's our future. That's what God has promised us. Um, Very different from Israel. Because Israel is promised that that God is going to rescue Israel as well. But he promises to do it when? Before the tribulational period? Or before they're destroyed, he promises to provide safety for them through the tribulational period. The end of the tribulational period, there are going to be a lot of Israelites who die. But at the end of the day, God is going to provide safe haven for some of the Israelites and make it so a a third, approximately, of the nation goes through it and is saved. That's what they're promised. And he promises that he's going to rescue them at the end of the tribulational period. There's so many promises within the Old Testament, not even including our one in Matthew chapter 23, we already looked at. Um, That being said, we now get to go on to our next point, which is that the church is a third-party beneficiary to the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. No covenant was specifically given to the church. There is not some mystical covenant of grace given in eternity past to the church. Um, And if there was one, you wouldn't find it in the Bible. Yet those who believe in covenant theology, who would actually propagate the argument that we're interacting with, that we're arguing with right now, would actually push the point that they believe there was an eternal covenant of grace. Um, because in order to make their argument fit, they had to find ways to build up that argument and support it. Um, as we're going to be looking at towards the end of today, that's exactly why they utilize Galatians 6.16. is because they can't find anything in the Old Testament that specifically says the church has been replaced by Israel. That being said, Israel, not so. They had covenants made with God Several of them, in fact. We went over the Abrahamic covenant, a covenant that God made with Israel. Again, that's why it's unconditional, because God's the one who fulfills that covenant. Same thing with the Davidic covenant, the new covenant. All of these covenants, the land covenant, God makes these covenants with Israel. We also have the Mosaic covenant, a conditional covenant upon when they, the, not the fulfillment of the other covenants, but shows exactly when they're able to receive the blessings of the fellowship with God in the Abrahamic covenant. So again, they have so many covenants given with God. Now, that's not to say that we don't get to reap the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. We see that through um, the analogy Paul uses of the olive tree. We get to see the blessings of God, blessings of fellowship with God. We also get the new covenant. Our, we are blood-bought saints. But we are not directly given those. We are given those through God's relationship with Israel and God's promises with Israel. Again, that doesn't mean that they were given to us, but we certainly benefit from them. Next, 
the church wages spiritual warfare. We see that if you want to turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Now, it says, if I can find it again, in Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10, Finally be strong in the Lord and put in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of the wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take on the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all saints. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. That's the war we wage. We're not waging physical wars to take over nations that God gave us instructions to do so. Now, that being said, Israel was actually supposed to, I didn't quote a scripture because there's so many instances where this happened. Israel waged war with physical nations. Because again, there were nations that were idolatrous, there were, which we have today. But you'll notice God isn't giving us this grand authority, first of all, much less an order to be able to just wage war with nations. We don't gather people from all nations to become part of the church and evangelize people while we're killing them. That's not the goal of the church. Um, Very different from Israel. Now, the church has no timetable. Now, this is one of the most critical differences between the church and Israel. It has no timetable apart from the imminence of the rapture. Now, this is crucial. This is absolutely crucial. Now, we saw that in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 10, Revelation 3.10, that we're not promised that a certain amount of days is going to transpire until the rapture, that is, this is how long we're going to spend evangelizing, this is how long we're going to spend building the church, what, whatever. It's not separated into different, uh, we'll call them orders. We're given specific orders to evangelize all nations, to train the people in our churches up in righteousness, And to extend that out. I mean, that's what we're doing as the church in large measure. As there are micro versions of that that apply to specific believers where we're supposed to be sanctified through the renewing of our minds through the word and become closer to God as a result. But our promise is that we are going to be raptured. Much much more, we're promised that could happen at any point. Not so Israel. Now, if you want to move to Daniel chapter 9, we'll look at that very briefly. And summarize something that we actually spent quite a bit of time, I want to say quite a bit of time, we summarized some of these things a while ago. So, that being said, Daniel chapter 9, starting in verse 24, it says, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, 
and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and to discern that from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. So basically what, what he's saying is that from the beginning of that decree in 444 BC, roughly, up until the point where Jesus rode in on a donkey in Jerusalem, we get a specific amount of time from A to B. So again, these are promises given to who? It said that first in verse 27, to your people, to your, and it's, I'll just read it so I don't misquote it, your people, your holy city, to Jerusalem. I mean, these are very, very Jewish promises, and they were fulfilled in absolute clarity. Verse 27, it says, and he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. That gives us a timetable for the last week, the last seven years of the tribulational period, because you'll notice that covenant hasn't happened yet. Um, and what you'll also notice is that it says the Messiah will be cut off. Well, that happened too. But it doesn't say how long between the cutting off of the Messiah and the beginning of this week that he, this person that we actually learned about earlier in the book, and we're going to learn about a little bit later too, makes a covenant with the many. The many being used twice in this book applied to the nation of Israel. So when we're looking at that, we're given this basic structure of a promise, a specific promise for them to be in the tribulation for how long? A week. What's well, a week? It's seven years. We spent some time on that before. I'm not going to go back into it. But again, very different from the church where we're not, we don't have these built-in timetables. We don't have these promises. We're just told that we're going to be exempt from the time of testing. Israel's clearly planning to be in it. Again, we could go into a lot more detail about this, but at the end of the day, any one of these differences should tell us that the church in Israel are not the same. But we have so many of them leading up to this point. And this is one of two slides. And I summarize these from what Lewis Berry Schaefer wrote in his uh, Systematic Theology books. Now, again, just another difference. Every member of the church is a priest. It's part of the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. We are priests through what Jesus did, because unlike Israel, who had a specific priesthood of limited members from a specific tribe, um, we don't have to go through a priest to get to God. I don't, and it even says in Romans chapter 8, my prayers get, almost, good word for it, would be filtered through groanings too deep for words. I mean, God is the one I can go right to God through Jesus. That's my promise as a believer. I don't need some third party to bridge the gap between us because I am a blood-bought saint. I am not righteous, not at all. I have his righteousness on my behalf applied to me. It's imputed righteousness. So I can come boldly before the throne of grace as a Christian, as a blood-bought saint, and be able to confess my sins to him, to be able to pray, to be able to ask for things, petition, um, be thankful I mean, all these things I have as a right as a Christian that is so drastically different from what Israel had. Next slide. 
we are resurrected at the rapture. We spent so many times on this. It's actually funny um, because we get resurrected at the point of the rapture. That's when we get our resurrected bodies. Israel is promised something different, which is interesting. And there are some, we could talk about that for a long time uh, because there are Israels in the church right, or Israelites in the church right now who are going to get their resurrected bodies at the point of the rapture because they are part of the church from all nations, including Israel. Um, Israel, Saudi Arabia, whatever the case may be, Russia. They're going to be Russian believers who are raptured with us too. Um, believe it or not, Ukrainians too. Um, <laughs> so at the end of the day, that's our promise. We're promised that we are going to be resurrected at the point of the rapture. Israel is promised to be resurrected at the beginning of the millennial kingdom. Very differently. That's how the promises made specifically to David are fulfilled because he can actually be part of the rulership in the millennial kingdom. We see that through the Old Testament. I have a few verses to support that too. I'm trying to power our way through this though, so I'm trying to be, trying to be quick. Um, but I would encourage you, if you haven't read Revelation 20, Daniel chapter 12, to reread those. Daniel 12 is one of like three references in the Old Testament to resurrections. The other two are in Isaiah. Now, the church has within it, at any given time, the universal church, not necessarily an individual church building, but the universal church only has believers in it. If you're a member of the church, that happened at the point of faith. You became a member of the body of Christ, this bride to whom Christ will wed. Very different for Israel. Israel did not have only believers. Israel has always had a large portion of them, with, with the exception of possibly the Exodus generation in history, They've always had a large portion of unbelievers and a very small remnant of believers. Um, that's still going to be the case in the tribulational period. That's still the case right now. Um, especially with the partial hardening that's gone over Israel at the point of their rejection. There are still Israelites saved and we rejoice every time that happens. But we have to keep in mind that Israel, that's, that on its own, again, is just another distinction that apart from everything else could show that the church in Israel are distinct entities in, in their entirety. Um, because there's not going to be an unbeliever as a part of the body of Christ. There might be an unbeliever in a church. That's just how that works. Now, the church only has the beam seat judgment to look forward to in her future. We're not going to be part of the great white throne judgment. Technically speaking, because Israel is comprised of both believers and unbelievers, they're going to have both to look forward to. The believers will... Right now, in the church days, we'll have to look forward to the Bema Seat Judgment, as we also would look forward to. Um, I say look forward to. I mean, like, we can look forward into, into future and know that that's in our future. That's something we're going to have to give an account to the Lord at. Um, I'm not saying it's going to be super fun. Uh, contradistinction, you look at Israel, and Israel has to look forward to unbelieving Israel, the Great White Throne Judgment, and believing Israel, the Bema Seat Judgment. So again... That's a distinction on its own because there are no unbelief. Again, if you read the MacArthur Study Bible, you'll come to a different conclusion than what I'm pushing right now. But inside the church, there, like if I read through the book of Hebrews, if I look, if I read through the book of Ephesians, there's not a section written to unbelievers, and then a section written to believers. These are letters written to the Christian church that are specifically addressing believers. I'm talking specifically about the church age. So the question I was asked was, 
Um, the BMC judgment, are we talking about believing Israelites in the church age? Or are we talking about believing Israelites in the, uh, in the tribulational period? We're expecting the BMC judgment to happen before we even get back to the earth. So we're not expecting those believers, both believing, we're not going to call them Christians because they're not part of the church, the people saved in the tribulational period, but the believing Gentiles and believing Jews in the tribulational period, we're not expecting them to be a part of that judgment specifically, is my understanding of it. And I, I could be wrong, but that's my understanding, specifically because it happens, I think, very soon after the point of the rapture. So... I hope that helps. Um, there will be similar characteristics between the judgment that we face in the BMC judgment and the other judgment. Now, that being said, um, did that answer the question? Okay, cool. So, that being said, people come to be born into the church through spiritual birth. You get spiritually baptized when you believe in Jesus for your salvation. Israel, come to Israel through physical birth. Again, very different. An Israelite is an Israelite whether they believe or not. A church member is a church member whether they're an Israelite or not. Whether they are a Gentile or not. It, there's no distinction in their ability to come and trust in Jesus for their salvation. Next, the church is governed by New Testament revelation. Some, Arnold Fruchtenbaum and others, have referred to this as the law of Christ, which is every imperative given in the epistolary literature to the church, which overlaps with uh, a large portion of not the law itself, the Mosaic law, which had hundreds of commandments, but specifically the Ten Commandments only thing we're not told to do is abide by Sabbath. So Israel is very different. They're actually supposed to be following the Mosaic law. Not anymore because Christ fulfilled the law. He was the fulfillment of the law. But before they were supposed to be following all of the commandments in the Mosaic law. When they followed it, they were blessed. When they disobeyed, they were cursed. Um, where they fell away from the favor of God and God would discipline them to come back to fellowship with him. Now, next, the Holy Spirit, again, this distinction is very distinct. <laughs> That's like a Yogi Berra quote on its own. But we have the Holy Spirit permanently indwelling us as part of the church. I don't have to pray like David did, Lord, don't take your Holy Spirit from me, please. Um, I can be out of fellowship with the Holy Spirit, but I cannot have him removed because I am the temple of the Holy Spirit. My body is. Um, very different than Israel, who only got the Holy Spirit for specific purposes. And I have the verses on the, uh, the screen to show that and demonstrate that in the Old Testament. And what's more is that they were only indwelt for a time. The, building, the builders of the temple were only indwelt for a short time, for a specific purpose. We are indwelt for our lives. Now, the church is a mystery. Again, just on its own could separate the church from Israel. Um, where it had never before been revealed until the moment Christ 
demonstrated what it was when Jesus started building his church and gave the revelation of the church period to the apostles. There was no church. The church did not exist. If you think the church existed, I welcome you to read Ephesians 3, Romans 16, Colossians 1, um, all of those places, because this word for mystery specifically relates to the fact that it was a truth God always had planned, but it had never before been revealed until that moment. It was a mystery from our perspective, but had always been planned in the plan of God. Um, Israel existed for many generations prior to the church. So Israel existed, and then the church started existing at Acts chapter 2. And they, exist, they coincided with each other. Israel did not cease to exist because the church was made, but rather just keep in mind the church is a new mystery in the plan of God. Um, that God always had planned because he knew that the Jews would reject Christ. Now, next, the church was promised, or not promised, told to go out into all nations. Israel was involved in a station, I'm calling it a stationary evangelism effort, um, where God, in his sovereignty, knowing that every person, every merchant, everybody going from one country to the next, and I, I wish I had a picture of Israel up on the screen right now, would have to go through Israel to get to any other country. It's kind of like, I've joked about Indiana being the state people drive through to get to another state, um, which there's not a lot great on the other side of Indiana, so it's not really good. Ohio would be a better example of that. Um, <laughs> I, I'm going to get in trouble again. So um, that's basically the idea of Israel, where people would go through Israel to get to another state, another state, another country. And... That being said, people who went through Israel will be able to see the marvelous Holy Spirit-infused work of the temple, the building. I mean, these were magnificent things, the riches of David's kingdom, okay, the riches of Solomon, the wisdom of Solomon. All of these things were, were done through God, through his power, to work as a sign to show them this is the one true God. And it was very different from us. We didn't want people to come. We don't invite people to come through our church to get to the other side of Main Street so that they can learn about the one true God. We go out into the world to show them that God is the one true God. So again, those are just some of what I thought would fit into two slides, because you'll notice I actually cut some off just so we would only fill the two slides. Um, there are other distinctions. You could actually go into a lot of detail. You could spend hours studying this. Um, and it would be a valuable study, but the conclusion you'd come to is the same one we came to right now, which is that Israel and the church are as distinct of entities as you could ever find, um, biblically and otherwise. So the end of this argument, which is where we're going to finish today, the therefore section I'm just so happy to be done with this argument. Not because I don't like it, just because, I mean, we could have summarized this in a single 20-minute section of slides. But if you're coming to this study with a reform perspective or a covenant theology perspective, you would be taking our word at half of this stuff. And it's just so much easier to show it in long form exactly the distinctions between the church and Israel. So now, one, to suggest the church must be involved in the tribulational period, ignores 
all revealed scripture about the future of the church in reference to the tribulational period. We looked at that. What are our promises? We're promised that we are not even eligible to be in the time of the wrath of God, the time of testing that's coming upon the whole world. We're promised that we are to look for the son who is to come, like we're looking for Jesus Christ. We're not looking for the tribulational period. Next, every member of the universal church is saved, so there should be no reason for the church to go through what Israel has to go through. I mean, I capitalize that on purpose. Um, Contrarily, Israel has always been made up of believers and unbelievers because she is a nation. Just like we we look at the Judeo-Christian ideology in our founding country in America. We've always had believers and unbelievers. There were a lot of unbelievers in the making of our constitution, but they had a Judeo-Christian foundation and a basic... um, Thomas Sowell actually refers to it as the constrained vision, where they believe that all mankind is inherently bad, that we are inherently self-serving, that we are inherently uh, not looking out for the interests of other people. So they built the Constitution specifically to make it so that we would be restraining evil, which is a biblical concept. The government's job is to restrain evil. Um, So that being said... Israel will go through the tribulation. We saw that. They're promised that they will go through the trib. And the tribulation will purge the rebels, as it's referred to in the Bible, from within her. And the believing survivors will go out into the kingdom. That's the purpose as it relates to Israel. Um, There are other micro purposes. If you look at the, we're reading about the 144,000 Jewish evangelists right now. Um, and other things they do through the trib. But ultimately, at the fulfillment of the tribulational period, the time of Jacob's trouble, Jacob's distress, the 70th week of Daniel, as we looked at earlier, um, because it's relating to Israel. Like, that's, those are some of the main purposes of that. Now, the church has no such need for purging, okay? Um, Because we're all saved. Because that's the, if you're a member of the church, you are a blood-bought saint and are saved. So we don't need to purge the rebels from the church to go into the kingdom. Now, does that mean there are no consequences for living a ungodly life as a bullet saint? No, there are clearly consequences. We looked at that in the Bema Seed Judgment. We ought to live and try to grow. Um, we're promised in, in order for the promises in 1 Thessalonians, in Revelation chapter 3, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and 1 to be fulfilled, We actually have to be raptured because that's a promise that's made to us. And it's a promise that we're going to be raptured before the tribulational period starts. Again, we have to not be in it just for that reason alone, much less the fact that there is no reason for us to be in it. Now, this demonstrates, in my opinion, that this objection that we spent so many weeks looking at isn't a a real argument at all. At all. There's, There's no concrete, this would fail in the biblical court is what I'm getting at. There's, there's no real basis for this argument. Um, and therefore, the church can still expect an imminent rapture because it has no ties to this earth, no ties to the promises of this earth. And there are no promises that say that we will go through Jacob's trouble. We actually have promises that say that we won't. Now, we'll finish our day by looking at Galatians 6.16. Um, I just want to make a point. Now, there are other places like Romans chapters 9 through 11 
that they try to hijack too. But the main hijacking of, uh, we'll call it the New Testament to try to show that the church is going to go through the tribulational period and that the church is uh, the same thing as Israel and all of these other reformed arguments relate specifically to Galatians 6.16. Now, you, if you study Charles Ryrie, he has a lot of good information about this. Um, but I'm actually going to show you the NIV quotation of Galatians 6.16 because Reformed theologians will not only, only quote this verse to support their argument, with the exception of a few other misquoted verses, they won't quote it out of the KJV. They won't quote it out of the NASB. They won't quote it out of the ASV. They will quote it specifically isolated to the NIV because it is the only translation of the text that would appeal to their argument. So I just want to make this point very quickly. So, of course, I, I don't believe in coming prepared. So I'm, I'm Googling it right now just to show you. So it says in Galatians 6.16 in the NIV, peace and mercy to all who follow this rule to the Israel of God. So the reason they do this, the reason they quote that particular verse, and I know I don't have it on the screen, is because the way that it's worded in the NIV, which is more of a paraphrase than anything else, makes it appear as if this verse is taking Israel, who's one of the main topics of this verse, as well as believing Gentiles, like believing Israel and believing Gentiles, and it's looping them together. So the purpose of this is to make it so these believing Gentiles associating with these Jews are part of the new Israel. Now, if you just read it out of any other translation, um, it'll say, and those who will walk by this rule, which is who in the context? Believing Gentiles. Peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. So it's that word and that gets mistranslated in the NIV. Um, And so what this is saying is all Paul's doing in Galatians is he's identifying specifically the believing remnant of Israel. Um, So, I mean, you could go into a lot. There are people who wrote 40-page essays on why this is the case um, in rebuttal to the misuse of the NIV translation. But at the end of the day, you can look at a few verses they supply. That is the one they most often go to to support their theory. And it says a lot that all I would really need to do to take apart their theory is just read any other translation than the one they normally quoted in. It's funny. If you read a rep- I actually did this earlier today just to see what the case was. I read a paper. I, I, it wasn't Kenneth Gentry. It was somebody else who wrote it um, where he was basically asserting this, this basic argument and he quote all the scripture verses he quoted in his favorite translation, which was the NKJV. And when, as soon as he quoted this verse, he switched to the NIV. So again, um, it says a lot if all we, all we have to do is read a different translation of the Bible or any other translation and we come to the right conclusion. So next week, we're going to be getting into a new argument. Praise the Lord. Um, but yeah, I think it's pretty, pretty cut and dry. It's an easy argument to come to. In fact, we could have just read this last slide and we would have been okay. But why say something in 10 words when you could do it in 18,000 words? That's what I always say. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your promises. It's such a blessing every morning to look at what you've promised us, the church, 
promises of permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit, promises of uh, regeneration at the point of faith, which happened in our past, the promise of the resurrection, which is still yet future to us. We thank you for all of these promises as they relate to the tribulational period, this time of Jacob's trouble. And we also thank you, Lord, for your promises that we won't have to go through that. Though you give us a lot of promises that we'll have to go through trials, tribulations, persecution, at the end of the day, Lord, these are nothing compared to the glory that is going to follow. So, Lord, I ask that you be with us as we go into this week. You be with us as we go into church today, as we go into the church service and hear more about Revelation. I ask that you give us discernment, as I always pray for, and I ask that you help us to understand and have ears to hear what you would want us to know today. I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.